This is Ways of Life. I'm Krista Wells, and on this episode, I'm talking with my dear friend, Vanitha Reisner, whom I would describe as a master thriver. Vanitha is a mother, a wife, a mentor, and has survived childhood polio, multiple miscarriages, the loss of her son, Paul David, and the loss of her first marriage. She's also one of the inspirations behind my song, Held, which was recorded by Natalie Grant. Vanitha has shared her story generously for as long as I've known her, and in recent years, she's authored two books, The Scars That Have Shaped Me and Walking Through Fire, her memoir, which was just released in January. She's also a regular contributor to Desiring God where she writes about finding God in suffering. Hello, my dear salt friend. Hey, it's so good to be here, Krista. I'm so excited. So I don't know when I'm releasing all of these, but you are my official first podcast interview, which was a deliberate choice on my part because you have been such a huge influence on my life since I met you a long time ago. Well, you have, um, you're one of my very dearest friends. I don't know. I'm, it's kind of weird. I'll be saying on this on the podcast, but we had to like write a list of people that we'd want to, we didn't have to. I did this writing my own obituary and then who would I want to carry my casket? Sounds a little morbid, but it was actually a really good exercise. And I put your name down. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a a fun little pass the time activity. Exactly. It was really uplifting. Yeah. (laughs) Just plan your funeral, do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Because we've been in a pandemic for almost a year now. So, you know, we might as well try to lighten things up with a little funeral planning. Yeah, I mean, you know, what more fun could you have than that? So I just figured I'd go for it. Oh my gosh. Well, Vanitha, we kind of love to talk about how we met because we were, first of all, basically children back then. I know. (laughs) I was 23. I had zero children and had just moved to North Carolina where you currently still live in Raleigh. And um, I don't think I've ever told you that when I first laid eyes on you, um, I was new to our church community, and you were like this beautiful, dark, and mysterious goddess, pregnant, <laughs> pregnant with Paul David, and you had this gorgeous little preschooler, Katie, running around. But there was just something, even before I knew you, before I met you, you have this magnetism, and um, people want to be near you. And I don't think that has necessarily always been your experience of yourself because I've heard your your story. So I I would love for us to go back to your beginning and for you to share with our listeners the the shape of your life story so far, beginning with your polio diagnosis and just what are the circumstances and events that have been most shaping for you and brought you to where you're at today? Yeah. Wow. I know it's a huge question. Yeah. No, it's just kind of funny because when you said, you know, I had, you know, the kind of person people want to get to know, that's not my own frame of myself, which I guess is for none any of us. You know, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm really 16 and I don't know how the world has all changed. And somehow I'm a grown up now Mm because I don't feel like a grown up. But you know, I am. But um, um, my um, my story actually starts in India. I was um, 
born in India. My parents are believers, which is unusual in India. My parents are Christians and um, they, uh, I grew up in um, Madras, India. I was, that's where I was born. And my dad actually was working in a different city. Um, so I was born and my dad came back, I think, to see me after I was born. <laughs> and then he went back to working where he was. And when I was three months old, um, my mom and grandmother and aunt um, all went to the beach. And I came down with a really high fever. It was 105 and they had no idea what it was. And so um, they actually took me to a friend who was a doctor and she immediately diagnosed me as having typhoid because that was kind of an epidemic right then. So she gave me cortisone, which lowered my body's fever, but it also lowered my immune system. And so very quickly, I was completely paralyzed and mm. they didn't know what had happened. So my mom and my aunt and my grandmother all took me to the hospital and or to the doctor and they diagnosed me with polio. But at that point, it was too late, and they didn't know what to do. I was completely paralyzed. My dad wasn't even there, so my mom had to let him know what had happened. Mm. And that's sort of how it began. The doctors basically, after over a short period of time, told my parents there was nothing they could do and that my parents should leave India because there was no medical care. And in India, uh, disability really is seen as a curse by everybody. There's no facilities for people who are disabled. I mean, there's no ramps. It's just not a culture that is geared to that. And um, at the time, the medical system in India wasn't nearly as good as the West. So they basically told my parents to get out of the country, which is what they did. My dad, who was a professor in India, took a job installing telephones in London um, so I could get good medical care. So we moved there and I had my first surgery at two and then we moved to Canada, which is really where I spent most of my growing up. So I, I actually lived in the Shriners Hospital hmm. and that was a free hospital, Krista. So the weird thing was a lot of parents would actually leave their children there and wouldn't see them for a really long time. Wow. And so they would not let parents visit whenever they wanted. They could only come on weekends so that the kids who didn't have family there wouldn't feel bad. Hmm. Wow. So I, I grew up on my own and really forged this really different view of myself. I, I was in the hospital for nine months straight once in a body cast flat on my back. And just had this really different view of the world. My view of life kind of came through TV, which sounds kind of wild, but there was a TV in the ward and we would all watch it. And that's what we thought real life was. And we felt like none of us were actually living real life. Like somehow we were living some strange half-life and there was the rest of the world and there was us. And I, I grew up really having that idea. And I feel like I, I carried it through a lot of my life that somehow normal people had this one life and I had a different one. I wonder about, and I hope you'll share with us, maybe all the impacts that that early formation of belief of a way of seeing yourself in context of the rest of the world, how that's impacted you, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really taken a long time for me to sort of come to terms with who I am in some ways, because I, 
I feel like I lived life on the outside of me almost. Mm. Like I, I wasn't willing to feel my feelings. I almost had to figure out how I was supposed to feel. And then I tried to feel them. Wow. If that makes any sense. <laughs> hearing you say living on the outside of me, whereas I was first hearing I was living on the outside of other people, outside of community. But yeah. you're saying that extended into feeling like you were outside of yourself as well. Yeah. I didn't feel like I had the freedom to feel or be myself. I didn't even know who I was in some way. So I'd watch TV, I'd watch the Brady Bunch, I'd watch these shows and then somehow figure out like, how was I supposed to respond? And so I always had this view of there was the whole world and then there was me and I was just trying to figure out um, who I was and how I fit in. And, and that, that occurred for years, even after I was in the hospital, I think. And, um, but the hardest part about being in the hospital was actually not being there, but coming home because then I was in the world with all these people that seemed to be having these perfect normal lives. And mine was completely different. And it wasn't like I was in a group of people that were all sort of living life watching it through a screen. I was the only one that felt different at that point. Hmm. And kids would bully me, um, sometimes really subtly. It wasn't, um, you know, I'd see them imitating the way that I walked and sometimes pretty overtly. And one time when I was seven, um, a group of kids knocked me down and, and hmm. called me a cripple. And I know it was, I just was very different from them, but inside I just, I remember that was kind of the moment where I realized the world isn't safe. Like I'm not safe in this world. Wow. I have to figure out how to protect myself, how to, how to make it. Wow. Do you remember having that clarity then, or is that in retrospect? Did you articulate that as a child? I'm not safe. Or was it more, I've, looking back, I realized this is how I felt. Um, I think it's it's more looking back. I was reading something where it said, what is the moment that you realized the world wasn't safe? Like we yeah. all sort of have that moment. Yeah. And I thought that was the moment. Like I remember just being so confused. Like what is happening and why is this happening? And then I realized sort of back to my days in the hospital, like, of course I'm different. I don't fit in. This happens to people that are on the outside. Mm. Was there anything at that point of your life that pushed back against that belief? Did you have any voices, any influences, any people, or even something within yourself that, you know, tried to speak into that or? Yeah, I think my parents, I mean, they always were my biggest cheerleaders, you know, some parents, you know, they're like, you can do anything you want. You're wonderful. <laughs> you, everybody loves being around you. I mean, my mom would always say that. It's like, right. only you think that, mom. <laughs> so I, I had that. Um, and that was really huge because I knew my parents loved me and accepted me. But I feel like part of it was I felt like I couldn't tell them that other kids didn't think I was as wonderful as they mm -hmm. thought I was. Yeah. So there was this feeling like I needed to protect them so that they would uh, not... I don't think I ever thought they'd be embarrassed by me, but more like they would be so crushed if they knew how hard it was for me that I had to pretend that it was fine. Was that you felt like their experience of your suffering was as hard or harder than your own? 
and you didn't want them to have any, you didn't want to add to that burden? I think I didn't want to add to that burden. I don't know if I thought their suffering was harder or I just was almost embarrassed that I wasn't as great as they thought I was. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I don't I don't really know, but I just remember thinking the world isn't safe um and not using those terms, but just feeling like I I wasn't part of everything. Mm-hmm. And so I was pretty angry kid and honestly nobody knew but my sister and maybe my parents to some extent, but I kind of hid it from them. The only person that got all of me in my horribleness was my sister. I was unspeakably mean to her, especially Mm. when it was just the two of us. And I look back and I really cringe, but it was almost like she was the only person that I could make myself feel better against. Mm. So I would take every weakness that she ever mentioned and and bring it up and um, just really was hard to her because that was the only outlet for me. Mm-hmm. And so, but I was pretty angry at God. I went to church with my parents um, just because I didn't want to rock the boat, but I thought there was no God. And if there was, I didn't want anything to do with God mm. because I could not believe this would have happened to me if there was a good God. Right. So that that's kind of what my childhood was like, I would say, um, in terms of just feeling like I was different. And so kind of your original sort of question, like when you'd said, when you first met me at church, you thought, oh, wow, I was somebody you'd want to get to know. But that was my experience of growing up is who would want to get to know me? Which is so, so important for all of us, I think, to to realize that that what we are projecting a lot of it, what we assume other people are thinking or feeling about us usually has so much more to do with our own personal history that those people weren't even around for, you know? So like they, you are experiencing yourself according to all of what's come before and what has been done to you or said to you and, and, and maybe completely unaware of how much love and affection there is in the world for you. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely see myself differently now, even as I look at pictures of myself. I was looking through some old pictures of when I was really young and putting myself as I felt, kind of imagining how I felt and remembering I felt very differently about what I saw than Mm -hmm. what I can see now. Like I can look at myself with way more compassion than I could when I was living it. That is so that that is so fascinating to me. It's almost like as you're describing that, I'm seeing you almost watch the same movie from two different yeah. from two different filters, two different angles, and it's maybe the same facts, but the camera zooms in to different things or different expressions that allows you to see yourself and maybe other people. Yeah, the dynamic there very differently. It just it makes you really wonder about what is truth, you know, in the in terms of our personal histories. It's like, you can have in my case, four siblings in the same household. And we would describe events and our parents and each other so differently. But we're all there. And we might be, you know, getting the facts right. But the truth was experienced so differently. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really yeah, it's really 
It's been very interesting, just kind of, you know, as even as I wrote my memoir, it was quite a journey for me to look at myself in these different times of my life and realizing it was really after my um, ex-husband left and I had to come to terms with um, being on my own and who am I really, that I think I started to see things a little more clearly. Um, I, I clearly remember, um, I was seeing a counselor and I was on my way to her office and I kind of felt like all the issues that had happened were somehow because I was lacking because that was this story I always told myself that somehow I wasn't enough in different ways. And just this really clear voice that I feel like was the Lord saying, it's not about you. And it sounds like such a small little phrase, but that turned me around. And I remember walking into her office and saying, what do you think of this? Like, I've always felt like all the bad things were somehow because I wasn't enough. I didn't do enough, but I kind of have this feeling like this whole situation is not about me at all. <laughs> and she said, I think that's such truth that you need to hold on to. And it really was almost like all of a sudden, all these little pieces started falling into different slots. And it was like, oh my gosh, I can see things a whole different way than the way I had viewed them before. And there's so much power in that. And and it's interesting how, um, I mean, there's so much power in choosing to see something differently, um, yes. which is a whole a conversation too. I've been pondering about changing your mind and how people are afraid that changing their mind or hearing someone else's point of view is giving power away. It's a sign of weakness or people behave as if they're afraid to be weak and to not be the power voice in a conversation. But the ability to change your mind gives you so much power, you know, you're yeah. getting to be so present and with new information and your your own experience. But I, I think also that idea of this isn't about me is interesting, because it's, it's describing how it can be a relief to not be the center of the world, like the center of the universe, you know, to, yeah. to go, oh, I was believing everything that happens around me that affects me is about me. <laughs> yeah. And it's a relief to go, oh, wait, everybody I encounter is, in one sense, the center of their own universe, you know, yeah. so they're not paying nearly as much attention to me as for better or worse, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I thought it's so their choices, their abandonment, their treatment of me. It's just, it's so much about their pain or their short sightedness or their history and less yeah. about me, even though it affects me, impacts. And I think just thinking about that as it goes all the way back to my childhood, like as I re look at that, the bullying was not about me at all. Hmm. I mean, it might have been slightly, you know, I remember this one girl in my fifth grade class who when the teacher would turn around, she would make fun of me. And when the teacher was gone, I remember one day, I don't have any strength in my left arm. And she like lifted up my arm and let it drop. And it was like swinging. And she was just like, oh, I think that's funny, don't you guys? And it was the most humiliating moment. I mean, I still remember it. And, and yet I learned, you know, she had a lot of struggles in her own life a lot. And I just think often people take it out on us, take it out on people that are just right in front of them, when it's so much more about them than it is about the person they're bullying or, or leaving or any of those things. But I think 
we see it as just, oh my gosh, there's something massively wrong with me that this would happen. And I agree, just kind of taking our eyes a little bit off ourselves and saying, okay, this isn't about me at all. Right. Right. My pain, my response has is telling me something about me. It's information, but this yes. other person's behavior is beyond my control or so after so your whole childhood was spent you you were early to encounter suffering. Yes. Um and then can you share about your adult life, some of those pivotal pivotal yeah. experiences? Yeah. So encountered suffering when I was young and then um when I was 16, I went to FCA, uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and um, a friend of mine uh, and I would sit in the back and talk about boys. I had no interest <laughs> in God whatsoever, but it was a really great place to meet guys, so I was there. Uh, and then she became a Christian, and she came to me and said, God is real. And I remember just being so annoyed. I just thought, oh my gosh, she's going to be one of these people that wants to talk about God all the time. I just cannot handle it. And she was my next door neighbor. So I just thought I cannot do this, but I would listen to her. And then one day I just kind of out of desperation, I just said, God, if you're real, just show me. Hmm. And I honestly said it fairly arrogantly. I didn't really think there was a God or that anything was going to happen, but uh, the next morning I decided, oh, okay, maybe I'll give this a shot. So I got up, pulled out this Bible I had had from being confirmed at church, which at the time hadn't meant anything to me. And really just kind of said into the air, like, why, why did this all happen? Like, hmm. explain it to me sort of thing. And I, I flipped open the Bible to John nine, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and they say, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind. Sorry, they passed a blind man. And Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God would be displayed in his life. And that was this moment for me where I thought, oh my gosh, I'm being super arrogant talking about God or talking to him and he's answering me and answering me with a different answer to then the question I asked. My question of why was like what the disciples were asking, like, why? What did I do? And Jesus's answer of was of why wasn't not what did he do, but why did it happen? What What is the purpose? And I saw that huge difference immediately in my own life and thought, wow, there's a purpose to this. And that, that was probably the defining moment for me in terms of just realizing, okay, God can use this disability. And it really changed how I viewed myself. That was kind of the first reframing of one of many. Um, but I really didn't see myself as a victim anymore, that somehow I didn't have a, a good life. I felt like, wow, God has chosen me for something pretty special. So I, I actually have a great life. And wow. I didn't tell my family because I thought, oh, they, I, I just didn't want to talk about it, honestly. So I didn't <laughs> tell them. Uh, but then my sister knew. She told my mom, something has radically changed. And it was because I wasn't taking out my whole, all of my frustrations on her. And I didn't tell her anything, but she said to my mom, like, she's different. Something is completely changed in her, wow. which is pretty neat because she only told me that years later. And um, that's a pretty cool thing to it's have beautiful. somebody notice. Yeah. To see, I mean, that's the whole conversation about bearing fruit, right? That you didn't have to explain everything to her before she noticed new yeah. fruit growing in your yeah. life. 
So that was wild. And I, I really thought at that point, Krista, that my life was going to be great. Like I was just kind of of the mindset that I felt bad for everybody else whose lives were not, um, <laughs> who hadn't struggled because mine was going to be great. And it was great. It was 14 years or 17 years in some ways of great. Like just, you know, got into every college, every grad school, every job, married, met and married my uh, classmate um, who was great. Just everything about life was easy. And I really thought that's what the Christian life bought you. Like you have your one problem, you meet Jesus and that's it. It's great. And so my first brush with suffering actually was, was when I was 29, I had a miscarriage and that was my first thought, like, wow, everything may not go exactly as I want it to. Hmm. And then lots of things started happening. I ended up, um, in total, I've had four miscarriages. And then I had a son, um, Paul David, who was born with a heart problem. And that, first of all, just having a child um, that I knew in utero had a heart problem kind of rocked my world. And sure. Um, everybody told me if I had enough faith, not everybody, but a bunch of people told me if I had enough faith, I, he would be healed when he was born. And that was very scary and frustrating and aggravating to me that people would put that out there. So then mm -hmm. somehow you feel like, okay, if he's not healed, then somehow I haven't done my job. Right. And that was a crazy hard time for me. I feel like I prayed every way that I knew how to pray because I wanted to make sure that I had crossed all my T's. Yeah. And dotted my eyes. <laughs> um, I often eyes. try to Dot cross the eyes. <laughs> That's what I usually do. But, you know, for your podcast, I want to do it right. Um, but that, that was pretty hard. And then it ended up that um, a doctor, Paul was born, he had surgery at birth, Brought him home. He was doing amazingly, but a doctor impulsively took him off all his medicine, and and Paul died. And and that's really when I met you was right around then or right before that. And that was um, that was really hard for me, Krista. I was teaching Bible study at the time, right when when um, I was pregnant. And I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but you feel like you have to be strong for everybody around you. Like it's not even your faith anymore. It's just that you have to be strong for other people. And so sure. after Paul, right when Paul died, I felt like God carried me. Like it was kind of incredible. Like God was there and I felt his presence. And then I didn't feel anything. And then I was angry and then God was distant. And I didn't know what to do with that. I, I, I really... I didn't feel the freedom to even tell anybody because I felt like people would judge me or say like, how could you have said that God was so good? And then now not feel that way. Right. Um, and so in some ways I felt like I needed to defend God, which is kind of crazy. Um, so it took a while for me to even want to connect with God. And I finally just called out to him and just said, God, help me. And that's really all I said. Um, I, I just can't live like this anymore. And God met me in this way that, I mean, to this day is probably the highlight of my Christian life. And, mm -hmm. and it gave me this sense of what heaven might be, just the sense of God is with me. And I don't live in that place where um, I feel that close to God all the time, but just even experiencing it really reshaped me. And helped me see, yeah, that this life isn't all there is. 
Can you, for people who haven't, who are not sure how they feel about, you know, mystical connections with God or the divine, (laughs) how, how would you describe that moment? What was that like something that you were thinking where did you have new thoughts did you feel something in your body what you know what yeah. was that like um well i i had pushed in a um like a, a tape like a worship song tape and i was kind of singing with it and then i'm a horrible singer but i turned off the tape and kept singing myself <laughs> which that itself is kind of scary but um <laughs> and there was there was just this sense of unbelievable joy like I was laughing like when you're so happy like kind of like when you fall in love at first and you just can't can't believe this person likes you or (laughs) um you know just this sense of wow or seeing something incredibly beautiful that just kind of takes over Mm -hmm. like when you watch some kind of sunset sometimes you just feel like wow this is so breathtaking and yeah. that's that's how it felt. It's kind of hard for me to describe, but I was so happy. I couldn't stop laughing. I couldn't stop smiling. And you know, when something is really great, you you can't stop smiling, even though you're trying to stop mm-hmm. smiling. And it felt like that, like this sense that this was the best moment of my life. And I wasn't thinking about anything in particular. It was just this sense that kind of filled my whole body, like this nothing matters. I couldn't think about anything tangible besides God is in this car with me. I was in the car and just God is in here right now. And um, so I I know I'm not describing it well. I need to figure out words. But Well, I think anytime I've ever heard somebody, including myself, try to articulate something and experience that way, I mean, it's just not really meant to be contained in words. That's why it was not given to you in words. It was an experience. So, um, but I do think it can be helpful, you know, for the curious to hear what we're able to translate over. Yeah. And I'm curious if that stayed with you or was it something that it was temporary, but you could kind of hearken back to it and remember that it happened or did it stay with you in some way? Um, and no, it was temporary. Like it was there. I mean, I drove home and, and I, I remember it now vividly so I can think about it and remember what it felt like, uh-huh. but I don't live in that place. It wasn't one of those, like from then on, I have just felt this unmistakable right. presence of God. I mean, there are times when I felt it probably never as clearly as that time. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like it was it was enough, though, to be compelling and confirming and what you needed, not just for that moment, but to be something to keep building on? Yeah. I, I know that you are somebody who lives in constant um, connection. You know, you are a person who values connection with yourself and with God and with your people. And so... Um, was that just kind of one important or maybe the most important of other confirming connective moments? Yeah, I would say it was um, It was the most kind of, uh, I think I say in the book, it was the purest moment I've ever lived. You know, it just mm-hmm. felt like it wasn't about me. It was just purely about God. But I, I do sense God's presence a fair amount, but that moment reminds me that God is real. And I know that sounds weird, but I think we all have sometimes these doubts like, am I making all this up? Is God really real? <laughs> you know, and 
And I feel like that moment kind of grounds me, like when I'm alone and I'm scared, it's like, no, that moment was the realest moment. Like I, and and that helps me remember because I think in suffering, it's really easy to forget. Mm-hmm. And it, I think sometimes the things that we learn, um, they can be kind of theory later. And we think, oh, did I really learn that? Was that, a, you know, I, I don't know. But I feel like yeah. that moment, I go back to that, that kind of grounds me. Like, yes, that was, that was as real as anything I've ever experienced. Which is really interesting, isn't it? Because the temptation in a very reasonable culture, right? We, we really emphasize reason and logic and rationality. So you could say, was that real? But it sounds mm-hmm. to me like you're measuring everything else against the realness of that yeah it feels to me like that moment was a moment of full aliveness where Mm -hmm. blinders kind of fell away yeah fog cleared for a moment and we would like to have more of those you know and so we have practices that which i'll get to i want to hear some more about um you know how you cultivate that in your own life but first i know you experienced yet more after that, after the yes. loss Paul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was, um, it was six years after that, I was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome. And that um, is a condition that occurs with 70% of the people who have polio. And it basically means your muscles um, start going backwards. Like they described it to me at the polio clinic where I was diagnosed saying, you know, when you have polio, it's like your um, your energy and your strength is like money in a bank. and But you can't make any more deposits. All you do is make withdrawals until you don't have any left. And I, or you go back to where you were when you first got polio. And I was a quadriplegic. So they've basically said like, my arms and legs are going backwards. And the more I do, the weaker I get, which you know, I was in my thirties when I was diagnosed. And that was really hard to just come to that realization that everything I do is costing me my freedom, my pain-free, you know, I was in pain when I was diagnosed, but, you know, pain has just continued to be a bigger part of my life and limitations. Like when we first met, I didn't use a wheelchair at all. I didn't even have one. And now I use a wheelchair probably more than I don't. I don't need one in the house, but most of the time when I go out, I take one and, Mm -hmm can't, um, you know, Joel, my husband has to, um, you know, bring me my coffee. I can't carry anything really. And it's gone from a life of pretty independent. I lived on my own in Boston, walked to work um, to a life of pretty major dependence. I I can't do very much on my own anymore. Hmm. And that's been, that's been really challenging. Uh, There are moments where I get really frustrated that I can't do the simplest things for myself. But that has been another way that God reminds me that I need Him. I mean, in the moment, if I can do something, there's no reason for me to call out to God or to think about Him all the Mm. time. But every time I can't do something, I feel like I'm trying to make this challenge to myself. Am I going to see this as something God could use in my life? And um, and that has drawn me closer to God, just just kind of reframing it. And I feel like whenever we, for me, whenever there's a need in my life or there's something I can't do or something frustrating, 
I can do two things with it. I can get mad and frustrated and want it to be different, or I can kind of turn it back to, okay, God, I can't do this without you. Like, I need you to help me. I need you to, to show me what I need to do here. And that kind of leads to more of a continuous conversation with God, mm. which I've really appreciated um, the more I do it. Yeah. Well, I can see the parallel too in, in your relationship for, with Joel, for example, your husband now, um, how the the acknowledgement of need, you know, of that interdependence between the two of you is it facilitates another layer of relationship, doesn't it? We were, you know, yeah. Rather than just I can do it myself, I can do it myself. You're asking him to help, and he's happy to do it because he loves you. Yeah. And you, help him and um yeah that and the reframing of that changes some changes everything yeah you know your your need i'm reading this book right now called the overstory and there's a character in there who goes from being a successful attorney and just in a seemingly random moment his brain you know he has a stroke or something and he's debilitated and kind of frozen oh. for the rest of his life but his his wife continues who was about to divorce him before she decides mm -hmm. to stay with him and and the relationship evolves through the decades of him being completely immobile, mm -hmm. but their relationship deepens. And it's, it's, you know, for many of us, our worst fear, worst fear to have to be dependent on one another. But yeah. maybe our independence is all an illusion in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is really good for a relationship because like when I'm feeling super, um, annoyed, I don't want to ask Joel for anything. Like, mm -hmm. if, like if, if we've had an argument, like, like there's no way I'm going to ask him to like bring me my water after I've like, you know, I'm annoyed at him. And so it makes you keep short accounts because if you really need help, like you want to, you, you kind of have to get to a place where you're happy. And mm -hmm. so it with each other, and that's been good for me. Like it's, you can't just kind of exist on other sides of the house mm -hmm. and not that I would want to do that, but it, it just helps you. And I think that's the case with God too, weirdly. Like you can't just have this cold relationship that keeps growing as colder because you need God. And so yeah. you go back to him. And I think neediness, as you kind of mentioned in that book, it, it, it does draw you into relationship. Yeah. It's, it's humbling. And our, our pride keeps us uh, in this illusion of separation a lot of the time. And of course, we're not, to be clear, we're not talking about codependent neediness. Right. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. Yeah. But, um, and then, um, I know that you experienced the loss of your marriage because I was there when that yes. happened as well. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's just, you know, it's really incredible. When I when I used to sing Held, the song that I wrote that was inspired by you, um, and I I used to introduce that saying, you know, I knew this several women, you were one of the three who had experienced devastating losses, but we're not living devastating lives. And it it didn't mean that you didn't feel or express pain, depression, fear, like you've you're so honest and real about all of that. But you're also one of the most vibrant people that I know. And anybody who gets to hang out with you is amazed by just mesmerized <laughs> by your ability to hold suffering and joy and laughter in the same hand. So what are what are some of the ways that you cultivate that in your life? How do you practice that? 
Hmm. Um, I think one thing I like to do is just think about what I can be grateful for. I, I feel like it's, I, I have a tendency to be glass half full, half empty, whatever it is that the, <laughs> I never Which chose the bad one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm that, I'm that one. And so, yeah, I, I keep getting it mixed up, but whatever the bad one is, um, I, I have a tendency to do that. And so it's intentionally seeing how something actually can be good. And, um, I mean, recently, even um, I think I mentioned to you, I, I chose a word. I choose a word or phrase every year, and, and yeah. this year I've got God is using this, and just seeing that there is a, a, a something good in everything that's happening. In that God, just trusting by faith that God is using that, mm-hmm. and I feel like that idea has really helped me because a lot of times I can't see it. It looks awful from every angle I can possibly think of. And yet just kind of trusting that there is something bigger that is coming um, from this kind of gives me hope in a way that I think if I thought this was purposeless and meaningless, I actually think I would have been hopeless through my Mm -hmm. life. Like thinking my son died for no purpose. I've got post polio for no purpose. My husband left for no purpose. And there was a time both my kids walked away from faith for no purpose. It would just feel crushing. But knowing that there is a purpose, and I may I may see just one little thing of it, you know, I love the saying that John Piper has, God is doing a thousand things in everything he does. Mm-hmm. And most of them we know nothing about. And so just realizing there's a thousand things happening and all these hard things just has helped me a ton. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, also, just um, talking to God throughout the day, whether it be really um, uh, saying, you know, quote unquote, like super spiritual things. I don't think I do that. I mean, I'm much more like, God, I can't do this. I'm really frustrated. Like, try to cultivate this dialogue with God like you would a friend has really transformed my relationship with Him. Mm. I, I think when I was young, I thought, you know, there was a time to pray and there was a time to say super smart, holy things. Um, but, and then there was a time to just live life. And I just find that incorporating God in the everyday of living life is, is what really makes a walk with God deep. But just saying the right stuff in the morning, I don't feel like, I mean, God appreciates that for sure. And, but I, I feel like what's changed me is this constant talking with God. And then, um, and I know this sounds super trite, but the Bible, when, um, when my um, marriage fell apart, that became life to me that it never had before. Like mm-hmm. I would talk about the Bible before, but honestly, half the time the Bible was like eating cardboard. Like I, <laughs> I would, I would do it because that's what everybody told me I needed to do. But I would just read over it and think, okay, I, I you know, am I done yet? You know? And mm-hmm. then, all of a sudden, when I had not, my kids were angry, I was homeschooling, um, my husband had left, and I just remember saying to God, like, you've got to do something for me here. Like, I cannot handle my life right now. So you've got to talk to me through the Bible. And I maybe didn't say it quite that boldly, but probably something like that. And he did. Like, I cannot tell you how many times I would just open the Bible like I had a Bible reading plan and I would see stuff I had never seen before. Like I was reading Psalm 119 um, when my um, ex-husband left and 
I really never loved that psalm. Like it, it he, David, I thought said the same thing over and over for 176 verses, and I really <laughs> didn't know why anybody was reading it. Like honestly, people would be like, "I love that psalm," and I would say, "Do you really love it, or are you just saying that because it sounds spiritual?" <laughs> but then, and so, um, but then I remember reading like Psalm 119:25 says, "My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word." And I would just say that, like, revive me according to your word, because I'm feeling like I am clinging to the dust and eating dust. And God did. Like, there was like a highlight. It was almost like a little flashlight on all these different words in the Bible that really had not meant anything to me before. And he started doing it day after day after day. So it wasn't like just one day a month. It was like every day. And then I came to expect it. Yeah. And that changed my attitude towards the Bible. Like when you go to the Bible expecting God to speak to you, you read it with way more intentionality. Like you don't skip over stuff going, oh, I know that, or oh, that seems boring, because it may be the exact word that God wants to say something to you in. And it was that simple mind shift of God is going to say something and something I read today. So let me pay attention so I don't miss it. Yeah. And it changed. Yeah, I think that that is so, it is so beautiful and simple. Um, you know, they say uh, life-changing things are not easy, but they're often simple, right? Mm, you mm-hmm. know, and and that shift in expectation, first asking, you know, when you asked God, said, I'm going to have to see you show up in this way. Like, I'm, I'm going to need you to talk to me here. Yeah. And then you, you gave opportunity for that to happen, right? Because you took some action, you opened the book, right? You opened the Bible and you started reading and you received what you had asked to receive. And then that fostered confidence that my expectations are justified. Like I, I can carry on this expectation and continue to receive, which I think is so beautiful and an expansive way of living because no matter what we're going through, um, and honestly, whoever's listening, whatever your belief system is, as far as where your answers are coming from, that simple shift of say of of setting an ask, like I want to see goodness to, today. I want to hear truth about myself today. I want to experience joy, laughter. Your mind will be blown by what shows up to you if you ask. Yeah, a lot of it, it's noticing. I mean, that simple word of notice. Yeah, yeah. I have heard you say many times that something to the effect of, you know, you you have seen redemption and you have seen purpose in all of your losses. And you also don't come to people who are in the middle of suffering and project that to them. Like when I was going through my divorce, didn't force that on me when I was not ready for for it yet, um, and so I'm I'm curious what words you could leave us with in terms of how we can show up for people who are in suffering, knowing that they will know in time they will see in time what good can come from their suffering. But right now they're in the middle of it, right? Yeah. How do you show up, and what how did what made a difference for you? Yeah. I would say just having people actually just show up and be there and call and text, you know, I'm thinking about you, just, you know, thinking of very practical ways to help 
people. Um, I don't think anybody wants theology while they're suffering. I certainly didn't. I remember at my son's at Paul's funeral, somebody quoted Romans eight twenty eight, you know, which says all things work together for good who, yeah. for those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. And I mean, I do believe that, but there's a time. Actually, there's very few times in somebody's <laughs> suffering life that you want to quote that to them. And so I think we all want to have the answers for people. We want to say the magical words, whether it be point them to God or, or even just something to make people feel better because we want to feel better. Yeah. And I think realizing that sometimes we just need to sit in the mess with people and listen and not say anything. I mean, I think that's really the biggest gift we can give people is our presence mm -hmm. and not our preaching and not promises of what is going to come from this, but just to be there because everybody's on their own journey and we have no idea why somebody else is suffering, like none, yeah. ever. You know, that's one of the mysteries of life. It, so to tell somebody what God is going to do or why it's happening, I think is pretty um, presumptuous and arrogant and not true. God doesn't tell us why somebody else is suffering. I mean, you look at Job, he never knew why he was suffering. And so I think just being there for people is probably the biggest thing. I mean, and I think practical things are really helpful for people um, in this days of the pandemic. I mean, I think giving somebody an Uber Eats gift card or Grubhub mm -hmm. or something and saying, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I can't make you a meal, but go get a meal, you know, order a meal. Just being there um, and listening. Yeah. And saying, I'm so sorry. I mean, those words are pretty powerful. Um, and I don't think I don't think we say them enough because I think we want to have answers and people don't want answers. They just want presence. It's true. And you did that for me when I was going through my divorce and you would just show up without, you didn't wait to be asked all the time, which I think is huge because suffering people often just curl up in a ball and don't ask for help. But mm -hmm. you would just show up in my text you know, in my in my phone, just with a quick, hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm praying for you. What do you need? Or here's here's a thought. Here's something that encouraged me and made such a huge difference. Anita, thank you so so much. I don't I don't know exactly when this is going to be officially aired, but I'm so happy that you were my first official podcast interview, and that was again a meaningful choice for me. I love you so much. Please, everybody, go and get her book, Walking Through Fire. It's just out recently, and that's a whole other story. In fact, maybe um, maybe I'm going to need to bring you back on for a second one so we can talk about that project that we did together. The, oh, yeah. The Bravest Thing EP in conjunction with Walking Through Fire, the memoir. I actually had to bite my tongue a lot during this hour because there were so many tangents I could have gone to. <laughs> but I'll, I'll let you go for this time, and we'll, and we'll do it again another time. Oh, I would love to. Like the western shoreline.